Until you've mastered these basics, you don't need to spend a single brain cell researching the earnings per share of Saputo cheese, let alone what a 200-day moving average is. Welcome to episode 20 of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti. I've always tried to stress that successful investing is about the right process, not about the right products. But good products certainly help. And in January 2018, Vanguard Canada launched a family of ETFs that, in my opinion, are among the most useful new funds to appear in the country during the last several years. Vanguard calls them asset allocation ETFs because they include a global mix of stocks and bonds that provides one-stop shopping for index investors. They're available in three versions. The growth ETF portfolio, with the ticker symbol VGRO, has a target of 80% stocks and 20% bonds, while the balanced ETF portfolio, VBAL, holds 60% stocks, and the conservative ETF portfolio, VCNS, is 40% stocks. These are all funds of funds, meaning that their underlying holdings are other Vanguard ETFs. So on the fixed income side, there are ETFs for Canadian, U.S., and global bonds. And on the equity side, there are ETFs for Canadian, U.S., international, and emerging markets. So a grand total of seven ETFs in all. Now, instead of building your own portfolio with three to seven individual holdings, you can choose one of these asset allocation ETFs that's appropriate to your risk profile, and you get everything in a single trade. What's more, you never have to worry about rebalancing because the fund does all of that for you. Well, within days of their launch, I was swamped with questions about these new products. Some people seemed to believe that they had made all other index investing options obsolete overnight. I won't go that far, but if you're a DIY investor who wants the low cost of ETFs without the complexity of managing a lot of moving parts, then the Vanguard Asset Allocation ETFs are certainly worth checking out. They've attracted a lot of interest already. As of late October, the three ETFs had gathered close to $800 million in assets in only nine months. So given the popularity of these new ETFs, I've invited Todd Schlanger to join me on the podcast to discuss the details. Todd is a senior investment strategist at Vanguard Canada, and he played a key role in the creation of these new asset allocation ETFs. A quick note before we get to the interview, we make a few references to a white paper that Todd co-wrote about these new funds. If you want to track it down, it's called Vanguard Asset Allocation ETFs, a simple yet sophisticated approach to portfolio construction. I'll include a link to the paper in the show notes on my blog. I hope you enjoy the interview. And joining me in the studio today is Todd Schlanger from Vanguard Canada. Todd, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Vanguard Canada's new asset allocation ETFs. These were uh, a really well-received popular product when they came on the scene in sort of late January, early February of this year. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your background with Vanguard's global group in the UK and the US and how similar products in those countries uh, have already been created and now we've kind of brought this idea to Canada. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution? Sure. So I've been with the company for 13 years, uh, the first really eight years in the U.S., then three years in the U.K., uh, now two years in Canada. And these products are something that we originally uh, developed in the U.S., a very similar strategy called the Life Strategy Funds. Um, they were originally designed uh, you know, to be an all-in-one solution, very diversified, 
among both what we call local and global markets. Uh, so there is a home bias component we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, but the idea is to have in a single solution, you know, a strategic asset allocation that really gives you a lot of control over the risk profile of the portfolio and also, you know, tends to be pretty competitive uh, when it comes to returns due to the low cost of the indexing approach. Uh, so we had them first in the U.S. We brought them to the U.K. In Canada, we're bringing a very similar strategy. Can be used by an advisor, can be used by an individual investor. Uh, but the core idea is to have you know, a very balanced, diversified portfolio across a range of asset allocations um, at a very low cost uh, implementation and transparent uh, approach. Okay. Now, the, one of the interesting thing is the life strategy funds that are offered by Vanguard in the U.S., the U.K., and I believe Australia as well, yeah. all use the mutual fund structure. But in Canada, you decided to create these products as ETFs. Can you describe why you went that route? Sure. So we say, you know, it's first focus on the strategy that you want and then think about the structure. So for us, uh, a fund and an ETF are largely similar. Uh, you know, if you think about the F in exchange-traded fund is is the fund. Um, so a lot of the mechanics, um, you know, and the, the regulation even is very similar. Uh, so it's just a case that by market, you know, one strategy may make more sense. You know, in Canada, the way that the distribution of investment products uh, typically works, you know, an ETF gives us an advantage of being able to be just listed on an exchange and so for us, we're really indifferent. Uh, it just really, you know, is a matter of looking at the market and seeing for the investors that are using the product, which structure is going to make the most sense. Okay. Now, would you say that when you, um, or at least when your product team created, and I realize you're not directly related um, to that group, but do you think that these uh, funds were aimed primarily at do-it-yourself investors or were they more targeted as it added advisors? So it could be either. So what we see is for, you know, a lot of do-it-yourself investors, if they're looking for a one-stop, you know, portfolio, uh, this can certainly, uh, you know, accomplish that. They could also, you know, take this portfolio and add, you know, satellite allocations, whether that be to other passive funds or, or active funds. Uh, with advisors, it's more, you know, how are they uh, structuring their, their value proposition? Are they looking to alleviate some of the administrative uh, burdens with rebalancing and have a low cost, you know, balanced product as the core of the portfolio? Or do they want to focus more on, you know, behavioral coaching and tax location? And if you're doing it that way, we actually have the same asset allocations um, that you can build on your own with the individual fund components. So again, we're, we're really um, indifferent. Uh, but what we were hearing uh, in Canada and, and talking to investors and advisors was that there was a market for, you know, a single strategy that it was either a DIY investor looking for, you know, that one-stop portfolio or advisors looking help with that rebalancing um, and administrative burden of executing the portfolio um, that's really going to allow them to free up time to uh, reallocate to you know, wealth and estate planning and things like that. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that we've struggled with, you know, with our approach and, and on, on my blog, the model portfolios I use are very simple. Um, and we're constantly advocating, you know, for the valid value of simple portfolios. And yet, 
when you finally create a simple one product portfolio, one of the first kind of reactions you get from a lot of people is, well, now it's too simple, right? This kind of solution makes sense for, you know, the average guy with $20,000 in his RSP. But if you're a larger, higher net worth individual, you think this isn't really for me. You made a great point in the white paper that um, you uh, created after these products that you know, just a simple fund like this gives you access to somewhere in the order of 95% of investable markets. So can you talk a little bit about sort of the deceptive simplicity of these funds? Yeah. And I think that's actually a great way to put it in that the, you know, this question comes up over the years. I always point to the performance when that comes up. So um, obviously in Canada, the funds have only been around, you know, less than 12 months. Uh, but if you looked at, let's say, the back test, and usually I'm skeptical of back test, but since you know it's pretty much the indices that are out there and what you know publicly available for everybody, um, you know you can really trace that back and create. Okay, what would the performance be? And even add on in the white paper, we added on the fee of of the uh, you know the asset allocation ETF. And they would have outperformed, you know, anywhere between 80, 90% of the balance funds uh, through their simple approach. And we can actually take that even a step further and say, if we look at uh, who would traditionally be thought of as a sophisticated client. So let's say uh, an endowment in the US, and we've done these studies now, we update it every year. And we look at, there's an organization called Nakubo. So they actually measure uh, the endowment performance on an annual basis, and you can you know, compound that through time. And they really uh, take the entire endowment universe. These are large institutional investors using usually a mixture of active and alternative investments um, at traditionally a higher cost, of course, and that's one of the keys. Um, and we can trace that back over, you know, one, three, five, 10, 20, 30 years. If you look at how many endowments there are, uh, about 10% of them are what we would call the large portfolios. Those have more than a billion dollars. The middle portfolios that have between a uh, hundred million and a billion, and then small is less than a hundred million. So still even at a hundred million, a large portfolio, and you know, pretty consistently, these portfolios would have outperformed at least 90% of those endowment portfolios, including organizations with up to a billion dollars in assets under management. Now, if you look at the very large organizations, so you get to your Harvards and Yales, um, they've had a lot of success over very long periods uh, outperforming, but then you have to get into a conversation around, you know, did they have access to you know, these these great managers, were they able to negotiate fees? How large was the staff um, and so forth that, that was able to generate that performance? But we take nothing away from them. They've done a great job. But what that also means is these portfolios are highly, highly competitive, you know, up to even that billion dollar portfolio level. That really speaks to the democratization of investing, doesn't it? I mean, when you can say that, you know, the average investor nowadays with as little as a few hundred dollars to invest, if you wanted to purchase just a few ETF shares, can own a portfolio that is as sophisticated and as likely to deliver, 
you know, excellent performance as the biggest pension funds in the world. You know, that's a huge step forward. I hope we could just get people to understand that. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I always go to the performance. Uh, the second thing is that, you know, just, just to add one final point is that the way these portfolios are structured, um, they're using broad market cap weighted index to get their exposure. So how those indices are weighted, they're relying on all investors to issue an opinion on the, how much they want to buy of any given company. And when you weight that all up, you get a market consensus of how assets are are allocated. Um, and they also do, you know, so that does a great job at diversification. And then the second part is they tend to have pretty low turnover. And, you know, when we look at what really drives portfolio returns, there's only two quantitative variables we can identify. One is the management fee. The second is turnover. So if you have a low management fee and low turnover, that's giving you, based on things that you can control, you know, a lot of advantages relative to a higher cost, higher turnover portfolio. Okay, so let's take a deep dive, Todd, into the actual construction of these ETFs, um, because although they are you know, quite simple. Um, there was a lot of thoughtfulness behind putting them together. There were a lot of decisions that needed to be made. Um, so let's work through a couple of the major decisions and you can tell us a little bit about your thought process as, sure. as these were designed. So the first thing to uh, to talk about is kind of the, the top level thing is that these are passively managed funds. I think a lot of people who may be um, you know, know Vanguard's history only a little bit, think Vanguard is an index fund shop and not much right. else. In fact, you've got a long tradition of active management as well. Um, however, you decided with these products to make them passively managed. There's no tactical shifts in asset allocation. It's long-term targets. So why that decision? So I would, I would break that down into a, a, few, a few points. Uh, one is we're one of the largest active managers in the world. Um, what makes Vanguard unique is our ownership structure. So we're owned by uh, our fund shareholders. Technically, that's our U.S. fund shareholders. Internationally, the um, you know the organizations outside the U.S. are owned by the the parent company. But ultimately, it's a shareholder that that owns the company. Um, that allows us to pass on you know economies of scale, efficiency in the form of lower fees. Uh, so for us, the key differentiator is not necessarily the active or passive, but low cost. Again, getting to the research showing that that's really what drives um, returns. Interestingly, if you look in Morningstar and you can actually get an identifier, is the fund an index fund or an active fund? Mm -hmm. That actually has no statistical significance. So we tested that for significance. Uh, so we like to talk about diversified low costs. That would be my my first point, uh, but there's a, there's a bit more to it even than that. In that, for us, the active to really be successful at it, you need to get a high degree of talent at a low cost, and that's critical. So whether or not you have access, and we have those options in Canada more recently that we've we've provided investors. So there's there's an option there, but then there's an individual specific component, which is the discipline. So if you look at how investors typically uh, fare in the funds they're invested in, they tend to trail by about a percent and a half due to the timing of the flows. And what we see is that with most consumer goods, 
you know, if something's not going well, you you change course. And unfortunately, with with investing, uh, there's a lot of cyclicality. And so, if you look at for successful active funds, uh, so if we look at from a research standpoint, just outperforming funds, and we ask in 15 years, how many years did those successful funds underperform? It's more than half. Mm. And so that's really the investor specific component that you know you really need to have that confidence in that manager through those periods of underperformance for active to truly give you you know a good chance of success in your portfolio. So with these funds, what we're doing is essentially providing the baseline asset allocation that's passive. And we think that you know these funds can do a great job on their own for investors if they choose to just use a single holding. If, on another hand, they at an investor level have confidence in an active manager, you know they could add a satellite component. And so that's why for these particular strategies, because we're offering just a few options that will work for a broad range of investors, uh, for a variety of goals, we've chosen to go the passive route. And again, it could be accompanied by an active fund, um, or an investor could choose, you know, to build their own portfolio. Um, but when it comes to one single strategy fund, at least as a baseline, you know, for us, a passive is kind of the starting place or the default uh, for asset allocation. Okay. So the next important decision I wanted to um, discuss with you was the equity allocation. So in all three of the asset allocation ETFs, the equity proportion, it's different in each one, but of the equity proportion, it's about 30% to Canada. Now, one of the questions that I get all the time because my model portfolios are one-third Canada, people say Canada is what now, 4% of the global market. Why do you overweight um, the or your home country so much, isn't that just an example of home bias, which is often touted as a kind of big mistake in investing? So can you talk a bit about the uh, factors that you considered when you set that allocation at 30%? Sure. So the home bias, I would say, you know, it's a little bit science and it's a little bit art. So, uh, you know, we I'll, I'll walk you through the factors we consider when constructing the, the home bias. Uh, so the first thing is to consider, as as you just said, how much does Canada make up of the global market, and it's you know three to four percent, both on the equity side and and the fixed income. Uh, the second thing would be, uh, is there a home bias that we can identify within that market? So in Canada today, and we're always a year behind with this, we get data from the International Monetary Fund. So this is as of. Uh, year end 2016, uh, we can identify that 43% of equity assets are are in Canadian equities. Mm. Now, if you look at where that was five years ago, it was 60%. So what that tells you is that it's coming down. And we view that as a good thing because the second part of it is what's the investment implications of overweighting your, your home market? Um, so, you know, you're going to have more concentrated portfolio. You can look at, you know, the top 10 holdings in the portfolios as an indication of that. Uh, you could also look at, are there any uh, impacts to the volatility of the portfolio? Is there a diversification benefit by spreading my assets? And when you look at that, you typically see that 
by investing about a third or around 30% of the equities in, in Canada, you tend to see even lower volatility than if you were 100% global. So the benefits of going global decrease the more global the portfolio is. So as you go from, let's say, 0% uh, in global, 100% Canada to 10%, 20%, 30%, by the time you get to 70% global, 30%, that's actually where volatility has typically been the lowest. So that's why we've selected that particular allocation. Uh, but in the white paper, I wanted to highlight you know, there may be opportunities to decrease that through time. Uh, so you could still, you know, reduce some market-specific risk. You know, if you think about concentration, if any particular event were to happen in Canada, you know, all else equal, it's better to be more diversified. Uh, so it's really the mixture of, you know, what are investor, what's investor behavior in terms of their preference for Canada? What are the investment implications? And then what we're trying to do with all of our portfolios is move them more and more global through time. So I would imagine as as the years go by, you know, we'll continue to evaluate this, uh, you know, and the home bias could be even lower at some point. So the biggest difference, I think, between uh, the asset allocation ETFs and, say, the standard model portfolios like you'll see on my site and many other related ones are um, we tend to recommend Canadian bonds only. And in the asset allocation ETFs, there is uh, Canadian, U.S., and global bonds. I know you've written a lot about this and the research behind the benefits of global diversification in fixed income as well. So can you talk a bit about how you arrived at that decision and what what factors need to be in place in order for that diversification to actually be realized? Sure. So this is an interesting one in that, you know, I just mentioned that in the equities, we see now people really, you know, understanding more and more the diversification benefits of being more global. And uh, that is happening somewhat now in fixed income. But still, you know, if you go back to this IMF data I mentioned, you have upwards of 90% of investors' portfolio in, in fixed income in Canadian bonds. And so we see a much more pronounced home bias. But if you look at the diversification benefits of, you know, including what we would call global, so that would include, you know, Canada, the US, Europe, uh, you know, Asia Pac, so so Japan, those would those would be the major uh, components. You know, it's it's a pretty strong case, and you know, it's a bit more um, technical, maybe the the explanation of it, and so maybe that explains why uh, people um, aren't aren't using those approaches more. So we're trying to you know educate. You mentioned a, a new white paper on this, uh, but I would break it down into two two major things. One is the diversification. So, you know, if you look at uh, the Canadian market versus the global market, you know, you get a bit longer duration. You get a bit less in, you know, corporate bonds, more in, in, in government bonds, and all what we would call these local factors of, of risk within your portfolio. Uh, then if you look at, you know, what's the correlation of Canadian bonds to global? In other words, how are they moving you know, relative to one another, uh, you see that uh, there there's a correlation there, but it's in imperfect. It's only about um, you know about 0.8 or around 80 percent if you think about it on a, on a percentage basis. So they're they're moving differently enough 
that hopefully you can reduce the volatility in the portfolio by adding those bonds. And and typically we we see that. So uh, you know we go through as you go from a hundred percent Canadian portfolio to a hundred percent global. You know you do see that reduction in portfolio risk. One way to measure it is the, the volatility. Uh, you know, you could also look at uh, you know these these local factors. You could look at what happens to the portfolio when interest rates rise. So what we see is a global portfolio tends to fare better uh, when interest rates are rising in Canada than a purely Canadian portfolio. That's another another measure of risk. The key, though, is the second point: only if it's currency hedged. So when you buy a foreign bond. Uh, it's it's got two assets. You have the underlying bond and the currency, and that currency is so much more volatile. Uh, I'll give you some numbers. You know, fixed income. You're usually looking at a volatility of let's say three to four percent. Currency more around fifteen percent or more. And so, the significant volatility of the currency tends to overwhelm the diversification benefit. So we can give a, a specific example. Let's say for a Canadian who buys a U.S. bond ETF, denominated in U.S. dollars, no currency hedging, right. you're not likely to see much volatility in that fund as a result of changing interest rates in the U.S. Like it's going to go up or down a couple of percentage points, but probably not much more than that. However, if the U.S. dollar falls in value relative to the Canadian dollar. Which can happen fifteen twenty percent in a year, you lose fifteen or twenty percent on your fixed income investment. So now the investment that was supposed to be the ballast, the stability in your portfolio, has become just as volatile as stocks. That that's exactly it. And uh, you know, if you follow the return of a global portfolio, if it's not hedged, it's you know one over the currency. So the the currency just completely dominates it. Now on the other hand, if you can Uh, hedge it at a low cost, which we can at the scale in which we're we're doing it. Um, then we think there's a diversification benefit. So that's that's the you know a bit of a qualifier when we talk about you know diversifying and in fixed income. It's always currency currency hedged. Right. So so the key takeaway then is if you're ever going to include U.S. or global bonds in your portfolio as a Canadian, you need to use the currency hedging, which is a nice segue into the next question, which is on the equity side, you've got uh, Canadian, U.S., international, developed, and emerging markets all in these asset allocation ETFs. No currency hedging at all on any of the foreign equities. So, can you describe why you decided not to hedge currency on the equity side? Sure. Uh, this is an interesting one because, you know, if you follow my comments on the fixed income, where I said that you know the currency is so much more volatile than the the bonds that it just tends to increase the volatility, or I would actually say not tends to, it it does across all periods. Um, You know, with the the equities now, all of a sudden, we're dealing with two assets that have comparable volatilities. So, you know, volatility of currency maybe around 15, equities around 15 or, or, or 20. And so now, all of a sudden, if those two assets are moving in a way that uh, you know they're they're creating a diversification benefit, maybe it makes sense to actually have that currency in the portfolio. I would say Canada is a bit unique. In that, if you look at the correlation of the investment portfolio and the currency, and you ask, okay, 
over 10 year periods. So, you know, over any given year, it's going to be really hard to, you know, make any, any, any uh, concrete judgments on this. But if you go over 10 years, you get a pretty good idea of is there likely to be volatility reduction or not by having that currency uh, relative to any other market. Canada consistently seems to provide a diversification benefit by leaving the currency unhedged. Um, actually, if you look at over 10-year rolling periods going back to the 1970s, the number of periods that uh, we haven't seen a reduction, there are none that you know, you, we could identify as statistically significant. In other markets, it's maybe more balanced. Maybe half the time you see volatility reduction, maybe half the time you don't. Uh, but Canada seems to be one of those those markets, and so uh, you know for that reason, and I'll give you one more reason, uh, we have the the currency unhedged, and the second part is how much currency is in the portfolio. So I gave you the methodology that we're hedging the fixed income, and on the equities, uh, you know we're leaving the currency unhedged, but we're also doing this across balanced portfolios. So. Uh, if you think about the other key component, which is that maybe you get some appreciation or depreciation in the currency that could impact the return, if you're invested in the more equity-heavy portfolio, let's say the 80% equity, 20% fixed income portfolio, you know that would be consistent with a long-term horizon. And so what we see is that differ those differences in return tend to net out to approximately zero in the long run. So if we're talking about you know, I would say 20 years, you know, 30 years, you know, you tend to see about zero return, even though over any five, 10 year period, the return can be, you know, more significant. And so, you know, that's another key lens we use. If you go to the more fixed income heavy portfolio that has, uh, you know, only 40% in equities then, and you, you know, that would be consistent with a shorter a shorter horizon, but still probably somebody who has that 20, 30 year horizon. And, and importantly, the amount of currency in the portfolio is going to be much smaller. So then the last piece of the puzzle was the frequency of rebalancing. So any um, fund of funds that has multiple components is going to have to presumably occasionally sell whatever has gone up you know, above the target allocation and then buy whatever is lagging. So what um, um, criteria did you put into place in order to um, govern how frequently these funds will be rebalanced? Sure. So this, this is an interesting one in that we've looked from a research standpoint at different balanced portfolios and the frequency you could rebalance them. So, you know, you could rebalance them every day. You could rebalance them every month, every quarter, twice a year, once a year. Uh, interestingly, when it comes to both the return of the portfolio and the volatility of the portfolio, we don't see a, really a difference across those frequencies. So you could say, okay, well, it really doesn't matter how, how frequent you rebalance. And from that standpoint, you're, you'd be right. Uh, the other thing, though, to consider is that with rebalancing, sometimes you have costs. So you might have costs to you know trade in and out of the security. And so when we're working with investors who are building their own portfolios, we typically say, you know, rebalancing once a year probably strikes a good balance between keeping your, you know, your portfolio in line with your targets and also managing the costs that come along with uh, the rebalancing. 
Now, with these asset allocation ETFs, we're actually looking at them every day for rebalancing. Uh, so you might say, well, why is that? Uh, part of it is because it's a fund that's you know has a as a benchmark. We want to make sure we're reasonably close to that. Uh, the second part is with these funds and, or ETFs, we have cash flows that are coming in and out, and so we're really able to use those cash flows to help keep the portfolios in in balance. Uh, now we've established a threshold of let's say two percent. So if the portfolios become out of line with their targets by more than 2%, that would trigger us to actually you know, rebalance or sell shares to keep the fund uh, closer to its, its benchmark. Uh, but what we find is that with the cash flows, we're able to keep them you know, pretty well in balance without incurring you know, the additional costs associated with the rebalancing. So it's a bit of a, a nuance. Uh, relative to how you might do it with your your own portfolio, but what it really gives you is a you know a pretty close tracking uh, to to the target allocation. Well, it's interesting because I think there is a parallel here to the way individuals manage their own accounts because this is something we deal with frequently, you know, with clients and also in discussions with um, do-it-yourself investors. If you're contributing to your portfolio, you know, once a month with your with your paychecks. Um, all you need to do is anytime you add money to your portfolio, just put it into whatever asset class is furthest below the target and you're going to be really close. You don't have to be dead on. Um, and the only time that starts to break down is if the portfolio is very large and your contributions are very small relative to it. But for you know the average person kind of in their peak earning years and they might be putting a few hundred or even a couple of thousand dollars a month into the portfolio, just rebalancing with those cash inflows is usually enough to make it unnecessary to sell things unless there's a very extreme market move. Absolutely. That, that is a best practice. Uh, and even as I said, when we're publishing our research and, and you know our best thinking around rebalancing, uh, we typically say even a 5% you know, threshold can make sense because you know you typically you'll see some mean reversion, uh, and if you keep it within five percentage points of your target, you know you tend to see you know pretty similar similar risk and return characteristics as as what you would have keeping it perfectly in balance. So, uh, you know the key though for the asset allocation ETFs is we're able to get them even closer uh, due to the unique uh, you know unique circumstance of having the cash flows to help us. Right. So then just to wrap up, I think, you know, it would be remiss if we didn't talk about one of the biggest benefits of a one fund solution. And that is, you know, kind of built in behavioral benefits or what you and your white paper called embedded discipline, which is a nice term. Um, talk a little bit about even some of the research that Vanguard has done about the benefits of holding a balanced fund versus holding a number of individual components separately. Sure. So I would I would piggyback off my comments about the active, where you know that discipline and patience with an investment is is really really important. And typically, what you see is cash flows tend to follow strong performance, and uh, you know they tend to exit weaker performance. And this is very consistent with you know a practice that consumers have really developed in most other you know shopping experiences that that works pretty well. You know, if you, you you know if things aren't going to plan, you just simply change course. 
with the uh, you know with investing, it tends to actually you know not hold as well because you get some you know cyclicality in returns. And so one of the nice things about the asset allocation ETF is because it's all put together, uh, you know, all the rebalancing, all the discipline is embedded right in the strategy. And we can look at the amount by which cash flows in, in investments are trailing the returns of the actual strategies. I mentioned it's about a percent and a half on average. Uh, we had a nice chart in the white paper that really showed for balance funds, it's significantly tighter. So you tend to get much closer, you know, alignment of the the uh, actual dollars invested to what the investment is delivering when it's all in one solution. Um, so that's a nice aspect that embedded discipline. You know, advisors can also help clients with this. You know, more by uh, you know getting that engagement with the investor and getting them to buy in. So the, there are different ways to do it, but certainly. Uh, you know the asset allocation uh, type strategies tend to do a pretty good job by just, you know, keeping the, uh, you know, keeping uh, the investment, uh, you know, separate. Yeah, I really feel like these days we have solved almost all of the problems in product creation in the sense that, you know, if you want a very simple one product solution that is broadly diversified across thousands of stocks and bonds, it's there. It's inexpensive. And now, you know, it's up to investors and advisors to improve the results, to improve the returns of individuals by just using those products, you know, wisely. So um, I think these funds go a long way towards doing that. So thanks very Absolutely. much for, for coming in today and explaining them, Todd. Thank you very much for having me. It is time again to explore the world of Bad investment advice. Where a little knowledge is definitely a dangerous thing. This time around, I was inspired by a couple of recent articles about how DIY investors can improve their skills by taking courses, either online or in the classroom. I have spent more than a decade doing my best to help people learn more about investing, so I am all for education. And I certainly have no objection to the idea that investors can improve their lot by engaging in a little self-study. Indeed, I don't think it's possible to become a good DIY investor without doing a lot of reading and maybe even taking a course or two. But I do feel you need to be very selective about any courses you take because there's a significant risk that all you'll learn are bad habits. Here's what I mean. One of the articles I encountered features the Canadian Securities course, which is usually the first one you take on your way to becoming a licensed investment advisor. A few years ago, the firm that administers the course launched a version for the general public. So there's no exam, but the material is essentially the same. It's marketed to people who want to improve their knowledge of the investing landscape in Canada. And I have no doubt that it does a good job in that respect. It provides an overview of the capital markets, basic economic principles, the difference between common and preferred shares, how bond yields are calculated, and the concepts of asset allocation and portfolio management. So far, so good. But remember, this course was designed for would-be advisors, and its content reflects that bias. I mean, sure, you'll learn about market-linked GICs and segregated funds, but you won't find any objective discussion about whether the high fees on these products offer any real value. For the record, they don't, and few advisors would recommend either of these products unless they were the ones earning the commission, which means those advisors have an enormous conflict of interest. 
But as an inexperienced investor, you might not be able to recognize this. So you might just think these products are excellent options that you should consider. You may not know that you're essentially reading your advisor's sales manual. The Canadian Securities course also includes sections on fundamental and technical analysis, two classic strategies used by active investors. So fundamental analysis involves looking at economic sectors and individual companies with the goal of identifying the ones with the highest expected return. This is the essence of stock picking. Technical analysis is centered around identifying trends in the market and using this information to predict how it will behave in the future. So this is the essence of market timing. Now, I would say it's useful to understand these terms and their general principles, but inexperienced DIY investors are not likely to benefit from instructions on how to read a company's financial statement in an effort to determine whether it's undervalued. I would say, on the contrary, they might think that after taking a course like this, they're equipped to become excellent stock pickers, ignoring the fact that they'll be trading against professionals whose resources and skills go way beyond an online introductory course. What's more, if a rookie investor is going to learn all about fundamental and technical analysis, I think they should also be presented with the overwhelming evidence that most of the time it doesn't work. And by that I mean funds, advisors, and individuals who use either or both of these strategies are unlikely to outperform a simple index fund over the long term. But I can assure you, you will not find a comprehensive view of that research in any investing course written by and designed for people who work in the financial industry. In my view, after you complete an objective course about strategies designed to beat the market and the success rate of investors who followed them, your conclusion should be, well, this was all very interesting, but the evidence is clear that most people are better off ignoring it and simply using index funds. Well, we know that's not the takeaway message most advisors are getting from these courses, so there's no reason to expect a layperson will reach that conclusion. They're far more likely to come away thinking these are the formulas for successful investing. It's not even just the financial industry that perpetuates the idea that being a better investor is synonymous with the ability to pick stocks and make forecasts. There are many useful investing courses offered by colleges and universities in large Canadian cities, and there are even more investment clubs where people can get together and share their experience. Now, there are no conflicts of interest or ulterior motives here. Mostly, these are just instructors who are passionate about sharing their knowledge and students who are eager to learn, and I love that. I just worry that they're not always learning the right things. In my experience in these environments, there is way too much focus on what I should buy, when I should buy it, whether interest rates are going to rise, whether U.S. stocks are overvalued. So if you're planning to take a course on investing or personal finance, or if you're looking to build a library of books on these subjects for some self-study, what should you look for? Well, here's what I think an investor education should focus on. Number one is context. Too many people think that the goal of investing is to maximize your rate of return and nothing else. It's not. Investing is just a way of preserving and growing the money that you've earned and saved with the goal of meeting specific objectives, such as funding your retirement. It's not a game. It's not a competition. It shouldn't even be a hobby as far as I'm concerned. If investing is fun, then you're probably doing it wrong. So any investing course should help you put your decisions in that context. Namely, how can I use my investment portfolio to help me achieve my life goals? Now, maybe it's too much to expect an investing course to expand its scope like this, but I would also encourage you to have a solid grounding in personal finance issues before you worry about investing specifically. 
Are you spending less than you make and saving the difference? Do you know the relative benefits between RSPs and TFSAs? Should you put mortgage payments before RSP contributions? Have you disaster-proofed your life with the right kinds of insurance? If you haven't got a grip on these important questions, you probably shouldn't be investing at all, and you absolutely don't need to waste your time learning how to calculate the price-to-book ratio for Royal Bank or how to know whether Enbridge's dividend is sustainable. The second important thing is risk. Even beginning investors usually have a general idea of what stocks have returned over the long run, but very few of them understand the volatility of those returns from year to year or the magnitude of the losses that you can suffer along the way. Here's one of my favorite examples to illustrate this idea. Depending on your optimism, you might reasonably expect a return on stocks somewhere between 5% and 11% over the long term. But take a guess at how many years your annual return would have fallen within that range between 1970 and 2017, assuming that you had equal amounts of Canadian, U.S., and international equities. The answer is seven. That's right, seven times in 48 years. During the other 41 calendar years in that range, stock returns were either below 5% or above 11%. Most people are shocked when I show them those numbers, but if you're investing in stocks, you shouldn't be. You should also understand the frequency and the depth of downturns. Even experienced investors can seem downright stunned whenever the market falls 10% or 20%, even though this happens frequently. So your education should take you through the really ugly periods when stocks lost between 40% or 50% or even more and stayed down for years. And your education should explain how you can protect your portfolio from those huge losses, not with market timing, but by including bonds and GICs along with your stocks. The third area to focus on is practical knowledge and skills. I think the most useful material in programs such as the Canadian Securities course and similar classroom courses should apply to every investor, regardless of the strategy they use. Do you understand how a bond yield is calculated? Do you understand why bond prices fall when interest rates rise? Do you know how Canadian preferred shares are taxed? Can you calculate your rate of return and compare it to an appropriate benchmark? How about tracking the adjusted cost base of your holdings in a taxable account? Do you know how to look up the key characteristics of the funds that you're considering on the ETF provider's website? If you're sticking to a very simple, hands-off couch potato portfolio, you certainly don't need to know all of this. But if you want to improve your investing skills, these are the things you should spend time and brain power on because this is the kind of practical knowledge that can help you make better decisions. If you're using ETFs, I would also suggest that you spend some time understanding how to properly place buy and sell orders and navigate your online brokerage account so you don't make costly mistakes. Most brokerages offer webinars or videos that should be able to help. Until you've mastered these basics, you don't need to spend a single brain cell researching the earnings per share of Saputo cheese, let alone what a 200-day moving average is. This is where many investing courses get it wrong. It's like training new drivers by explaining the inner workings of a transmission before they understand that they can't pass a school bus when its lights are flashing. The final thing, number four, is the behavioral piece. This is without question the most important insight I've had during my own journey from financial journalist to investment advisor. Being a successful investor is, at its core, a behavioral challenge. It's not about picking the right stocks or even the right ETFs or index funds. 
And while fees are extremely important, and so is minimizing taxes, you, you will probably still be fine even if your portfolio is not optimized for minimal cost and ideal tax efficiency. What truly makes a successful investor is usually the ability to stick to a strategy with discipline and to avoid the truly big mistakes, such as panic selling during a downturn, taking an inappropriate amount of risk, and trading too much. You can also significantly prove your investment decisions by understanding the common mental errors that we're all prone to, what psychologists call cognitive biases. So here's an example. Let's say you bought a speculative stock that lost 70% of its value. It fell from $100 to $30. Now, you don't want to sell it and lock in the loss. You're going to wait for it to get back to even. But then a friend says to you, why don't you buy more shares at $30? And you say, he's crazy. Why would I want to buy more of this loser? Yet, ignoring the effect of taxes and commissions, a rational person who holds a stock priced at $30 should also be willing to buy more at the same price. So if you think it's crazy to buy more shares, it must also be crazy to hold on to the ones you already own. The price you paid for them should not affect your decision. But of course, because we're human, it does. By the way, for the record, if a stock falls in value by 70%, you need a return of over 330% to get back to even. Understanding this should help you make the right decision, which is to dump the stock and replace it with something more appropriate to your long-term strategy. Here's another cognitive bias I see all the time when I play poker. We all start the game with $50, and after an hour or so, one guy is up to $120. He's considering whether to call a big bet, and he knows he doesn't have the correct odds, but he throws his chips into the pot anyway, reasoning, at this point, I'm playing with other people's money. Because to him, only the $50 he started with is his money, and the $70 in winnings are treated differently, so they're used to take dumb risks. This is called mental accounting. It's the tendency to treat these dollars differently from those dollars. Investors do it all the time when they treat their RRSP tax refund as if it were a windfall that can be spent, while their salary is hard-earned income that should be treated more prudently. They also fall into this trap when they treat a dollar of cash dividends differently from a $1 increase in the price of their stock or ETF. One is income that can be spent, the other is capital growth that should be preserved. But a rational investor should treat every dollar equally. One of the best ways to avoid big money mistakes is to learn to identify these kinds of cognitive biases before you fall victim. I'm not aware of any widely available courses in behavioral finance, but there are certainly many books on the subject, and I'll list my favorites in the blog post that accompanies this episode. As an advisor, I love it when clients have a thorough understanding of what we do as investment managers and why we make the decisions we do. But a huge part of your investment education is learning where to focus your energy and what you should just ignore. Courses may help, but too often they get the emphasis wrong. If you've registered for an investing course that will teach you about the different kinds of hedge funds or how to tell whether Shoppers Drug Mart is a good buy and how to buy call options in your brokerage account, well, you've probably spent hundreds of dollars to get a dozen hours of bad investment advice. And we're going to round out this episode with another installment of Ask the Spud, where I answer questions from readers and listeners. Joining me as always in the studio with today's question is my colleague, Amanda Diel. Our question this time comes from Carl, who writes, With the recent rise in interest rates, I've heard people suggesting that instead of investing in bonds, I should instead make extra mortgage payments. 
The reasoning is that the savings I'll enjoy by paying down my mortgage will outweigh what I have earned with bonds, and that the savings is guaranteed. What are your thoughts on this? Thanks for the great question, Carl. There is some merit in this idea, but we need to break it down first and then consider the advice in the context of your larger financial situation. First, we all understand that when you have a mortgage, you're a borrower. You're paying interest to a lender for the right to use their money. What may be less obvious is that when you buy bonds, you're the lender. The issuer of the bond is the borrower. They're paying you interest for the right to use your money. Now, unless you're prepared to take a lot of risk with your bonds, chances are good that the interest rate on your mortgage is significantly higher than the yield on your bond portfolio. These days, the big banks are advertising five-year fixed mortgages at about 36 to 3.7%, and many people are paying more than that, whereas the yield to maturity on a broad market bond index fund is right around 3%. So why would anyone borrow money at 3% or more while at the same time lending money, that is, buying bonds, at 3%. This idea seems especially foolish when you consider that bond funds can easily fall in value, so your 3% is not at all guaranteed, at least not in the short term, whereas making a prepayment on a mortgage provides a risk-free return. Once you understand this, doesn't it make sense to put any surplus cash toward reducing your mortgage before you invest even a dollar in bonds? Well, the answer, as with so many financial planning questions, is it depends. Let's consider Patty, a homeowner who earns $100,000 annually and who maxes out her RRSP with a contribution of $1,500 a month, and she invests in a balanced portfolio of half equities, half bonds. Patty also has a fixed-rate mortgage that she obtained three years ago, and she's paying just under 3%. She's able to make the monthly payment of $1,200 comfortably, but beyond that, there's no surplus, so she doesn't have a TFSA or non-registered savings. Now, returning to this don't buy bonds if you have a mortgage advice, how would it apply here? Remember, Patty's RRSP portfolio is half stocks and half bonds, and she's contributing $1,500 a month. So she could reduce her RRSP contributions by half. She could add $750 a month and hold only equities in the RSP, and then put an additional $750 a month against her mortgage rather than buying bonds. The problem is, this RSP contribution is made with pre-tax dollars, and the mortgage prepayment is made with after-tax dollars, so this isn't a fair comparison. In Ontario, Patty would pay over 43% tax on her income, so a $750 RSP deduction saves her about $322 a month in taxes. If she contributes to the RSP, she's able to buy $750 worth of bonds, but without the deduction, she would pay tax on that $750, and she'd have only $428 left to put against the mortgage. So now we're into this age-old question of whether you should use surplus cash to make RSP contributions or reduce your mortgage. The answer usually comes down to your marginal tax rate and the interest rate on your loan. If you're in a high tax bracket and the rate on your mortgage is relatively low, both of which are true in Patty's case, then the RRSP is usually a better choice. And this is true even if your portfolio includes bonds. The tax deferral and tax savings offered by the RRSP are likely to leave you better off over time. But now let's consider a different scenario. Mike and Kate are in their early 30s and they work as teachers in Alberta. They earn $65,000 a year, which in that province means their marginal tax rate is about 30%. Now, Mike and Kate contribute to their pension plans at work, which leaves them very little RSP room. 
They recently bought a home with a variable mortgage that's currently at 5%, and they're concerned that interest rates will rise. Now, the couple are good savers, and they managed to squirrel away $5,000 a year in their TFSAs, where they invest in a portfolio of half stocks and half bonds. Now, this situation is quite different from Patty's. Mike and Kate are getting no tax deduction from their TFSA contribution, so every dollar they're investing could be put against the mortgage. Moreover, the interest rate on their mortgage is relatively high, much higher than bond yields, and maybe even higher than they should expect in a balanced portfolio. So in this case, you could make a very good argument that the couple should decrease their TFSA contribution to $2,500, hold only equities in the TFSA, and then use the other $2,500 to reduce their mortgage rather than buying bonds. If we consider a third scenario with someone who had a mortgage and a non-registered portfolio of bonds, well, then the decision is even easier. This investor is almost certainly better off paying down the debt, as the after-tax return they receive on the bond portfolio is likely to be far lower than the mortgage interest they would save. Now, a couple of very important caveats for anyone considering applying this advice to their own situation. First, everyone should have some kind of emergency fund, and this cash should be held in a simple savings account that's probably going to pay less interest even than a bond portfolio. Yes, in theory, you could put this cash against your mortgage and save some interest, but you can't leave yourself without a cushion against unexpected expenses. In the Mike and Kate scenario, for example, I've assumed that they have enough cash in the bank for rainy day expenses. If they don't, then they should forego both the TFSA contributions and the mortgage prepayments until they do. Second, Let's always remember that the reason investors include bonds in their portfolios is to reduce volatility, not to earn high returns. So while it can make theoretical sense for Mike and Kate to forego bonds in the TFSA, they might not be comfortable with an all-equity portfolio if they had previously been holding a mix of half stocks and half bonds. Remember, it's not about the number of dollars they're putting at risk. Whether they have $5,000 in a 50-50 portfolio or $2,500 in an all-equity portfolio. The amount that they can lose in a bear market is similar, but the balance of their TFSA portfolio would be far more volatile in the latter case, and they would need to be able to endure that anxiety without abandoning their long-term strategy. So Carl, the advice you heard about paying down your mortgage before buying bonds has a lot of merit, but it depends on many factors, including your tax bracket, where you're holding those bonds, your risk tolerance, and your ability to meet unexpected expenses. Make sure you consider all of these before you settle on the strategy that's right for you. Thanks, Dan. Remember, if you've got an investing question for Dan, you can send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com. And if it has broad appeal, Dan may answer it on a future podcast. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Nick Jaworski, who edits and produces the show, and to Amanda DL and all my colleagues at PWL Capital in Toronto. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.